0: Can you believe that we're coming into the 8th season? No. In season seven's intro, we talked about the fact that we are Trinitarian, that we're Calvinists, and that we believe that everyone is saved the same way. Abraham was saved the same way that I'm saved and you're saved.
1: What, what other core issues do we stand by? That, yeah, all the solas. Um, because we recognize those as core hermeneutical principles. They're like signposts in the road. You
0: and I are both Sabbatarians. We both keep a kosher diet. And we celebrate the biblical festivals. People have said that we're part of the Hebrew roots movement. Pe- other people have said we're part of the messianic movement. I see that the idea of practice being different in all deno- in all sorts of denominations, which is why I consider myself a non denominational Christian.
1: If there's, it's it's worthwhile if if there's even a single person out there that hears a discussion and. You know through our discussion the holy spirit like quickens that person's heart on a on a specific topic maybe helps them in a, in a way that they've been wrestling with the word and trying to understand
0: we have faith in in Yeshua, we have faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith alone, justified by faith alone. There's no no work will save me.
1: I think I think we're gospel roots. We're gospel. we're we're gospel roots. In other words, we go back to the core promise of the gospel in the scriptures and exemplified like Paul says in the, the promise in you in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Here we go.
0: Wednesday, December 9th, 2020, this is Messiah Matters number 325. Welcome to season 8, y'all. Serving the faithful 36 for 7 full years, my name is Caleb Haig. I think I just... uh I think I just got your audio going I, I apologize yeah how's it going man
1: going well was it uh, was my audio off
0: yeah I think uh, I think I had you through a uh, a wrong channel but you're good now sweet
1: yeah okay I'm officially leaving the chat room just but I wanted to say hi everybody uh, happy kickoff to season eight
0: there we go love it I'm gonna bring okay I'm out up. Bring her out. Here, uh, otherwise,
1: me. I'll be tempted to. You know me. Yes, I do know you. Do. <laughs> yeah, happy Can't Hanukkah. You know everyone. me pretty well. <laughs> Everyone's saying
0: happy Hanukkah in the uh, chat room. We could talk about that today. You know, here's the thing is that uh, two days ago, uh, I did so much work this past week to try to get every. I, I don't think people realize how much work it takes to actually, uh, you know, get things ready to, to kick off a new season. Anyway, it doesn't look like a lot, but there is a lot. And uh, so I was getting everything ready to kick off the new season. And, uh, <laughs> it's uh we didn't have a whole lot to talk about and now coming in this morning we have over two pages full of notes that we could talk about we're not going to get to all of it which is great you know what that means that means that uh we got plenty for next week as well so hey at least we have two two shows ready for uh for season eight right uh we we kind of
1: okay actually, next week's easy because it's in the middle of hanukkah that's
0: right and maybe so, we'll talk we'll about how to Okay, so uh, I want to mention this first of all. Uh, our our producers are uh, scrolling across your screen right now, and uh, uh, there will be a new producer credit up within the next week. Um, so by the t- by next week's show, by two by three two, six, we will have a new producer credit up, and you'll be able to get that. Um, and. Then also, uh, I want to let you know that there is for our supporters, there is a Messiah Matters More video, a new one up. Uh, I went up yesterday, maybe the day before, um, and so I would encourage you to go check that out if you are a supporter. Thank you to all of our supporters and our producers. Um, and we're going to we're going to talk about some of the things that we talked about in the uh, Messiah Matters More video. The other thing is, is coming into season eight, I've realized that there is some, um, there's some room for people if they want to volunteer some time for us. Um, then we probably are, are going to start looking for some volunteers. And basically what we're going to look for... Uh,
1: call house to house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um,
0: get yeah, a phone yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get a phone book. Start calling people. Um, no. Uh, basically what... Uh-oh, I, I just realized that my uh, producers are scrolling again. Sorry. Um, basically what we need is um, we're going to start by having some, someone try to catalog our our shows and I have a catalog up to a certain amount, but catalog some of our shows, write descriptions, uh, that kind of stuff. And then um, there's some other jobs that we need done as well. But uh, just here and there work, do it at your own kind of time. So if you're interested in that, give us a uh, shoot us an email and we'll talk about it. And uh, speaking of emails, let's tell you how you can be a part of this conversation in Season 8. You can give us a call. Our comment line is 253-465-3205. It is 253-465-3205. Thirty-two oh five. You can also shoot us an email, cagatoraresource.com, if you want to volunteer for Messiah Matters. You can uh, write that email address as well. Um, During season eight, we hope to actually get our website up and running. One of our listeners is a superstar and went out and secured the uh, messiahmatters.com for us. So we are super excited about that. Nice. And yeah, uh, we're just waiting for it uh, to be uh, given over to uh, our servers so that we can uh, create a website. And then we will create a website and uh, we're we're becoming all official. We're becoming so official. Um, Anyway... Uh, don't forget that this, this is all, pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good. Uh, don't forget that this uh, show, Messiah Matters, is produced by TorahResource.com. Uh, you can go to Torah Resource and find all sorts of great stuff and sign up for classes right now. You can sign up for Rob's class, actually, his rabbinic literature class. If you're not signed up for his rabbinic literature class and if you haven't taken it, I'm going to warn you right now it's a lot of reading. But this year, this quarter is going to be a dynamite. There's a lot of people in that class, there's a lot of people who are. Uh, teachers at different institutions that are taking that class, which means that Rob's forums are going to be lit. It's going to be on fire. And so I would encourage you, um, you can do payment plans. If you're worried about price, you can pay all at once. They're not expensive at all. Go to Torahresource.com, hover over Institute. The very first one down is the uh, the classes that you can take. Find Rob's Rabbinic Literature class. It's going to be really fun. And I'm not signing up for the class, but since I am the administrator of the school, I can pop into any uh, classes I want to. So I will be popping in and out of Rob's uh, forums as well to, uh, to see the lively discussions that are going on. And, uh, yeah, all right. Thanks. A big, big, big thanks to Michael for making our new art and all of our new stuff. For season eight, we are super excited. With all that said, let's jump right into it. Last week, we had a lot of fun in the chat room. Well, at least we had fun. A lot of people didn't have fun. I think that we kicked a little bit of a hornet's nest. Um, there's some people who have have uh, written some great emails to us, and um, oh, what happened here? Oh, uh, written some great emails to us and have given us uh, feedback on things that they disagreed with, and that's great. Um, there's, uh, people who have agreed with us. One person called and said it was the best show we ever did. <laughs> um, so, uh, mixed reactions. Um, and that's fine. And if you have a, first of all, let me tell you, if you have, um, if you're watching this later and you disagree with us on something, please let us know in the comments. I read every single YouTube comment that comes in. And so, uh, try to keep the, if, if it's going to be longer than, you know, uh, yay long, then write an email. But besides that, YouTube comments are great. We love them. And And
1: live phone messages. Live phone messages are are great
0: as well. And don't forget to subscribe. Um, Go ahead and hit that subscribe button and then turn on the bell. Click the bell so that you get notifications and uh, you'll never miss one of our one of our videos. Okay, so last week we talked a little bit about uh, what people refer to as Calvinism. We like to call it the doctrines of grace. We're not actually going to jump straight into Calvinism. In fact, uh, I think that we've talked a lot about that. This is going to talk about something a little bit different. I'm going to go to our main topic first because I'm just itching to talk about it. I'm just itching for it. And this is a I I put this entire email into my show notes. Maybe that's why my show notes are so long. This is from Gary. Gary wrote in last night. This is such a great comment. It's going to fuel a lot of discussion and topic here for today. This is what Gary wrote. He wrote in and he said, "Uh, were you altogether serious in your response to Moises that you really could care less what the sages have to say? Okay. This sets up the rest of the email. And this is a great question. I'm going to read more of the email before we respond to it, but we are going to have to come back and talk about this. He goes on, this is somewhat surprising, especially since it might provide a good deal of insight as to how certain terms and concepts such as predestination were understood by the ancient Jews which in my estimation would be critical in understanding and applying an, a historical grammatical interpretation approach to the scriptures. Let's stop right there. First of all, if you don't know what a historical grammatical interpretation of the scriptures are, it is the uh, it is the perspective or the hermeneutic that Rob and I take when we uh, approach the scriptures. Basically, what it means is that you have to look at the grammar, in other words, language uh, that the uh, scripture is being written in, And you also have to look at the history that's going on around it to understand some of the cultural aspects as well as the historical aspects that uh, the writer is writing in to understand the meaning that the writer, the author, gave to the words. Now, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit hasn't inspired anything, but it means that there is meaning. There is meaning in those words. Um, So with that said, I'm going to have to disagree just a little bit with what Gary has already said. And the reason why is because when we look at um, rabbinical texts, okay, and this is ultimately the the conversation that we're going to have right now is on the rabbis versus the church fathers. When we look at rabbinical texts, we're looking at at least 300 years after the writing of the apostolic or the New Testament, apostolic scriptures, New Testament. So this would be like me trying to give insight into the writing of the Declaration of Independence. That's about 300 years old, Uh, even less than that, right? It's close, though. But the point is, is that a lot has changed since the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Language has changed significantly. Um, Culture has changed quite a a bit. There's a lot that's gone on since that time. And when you're talking about the writing of the rabbinic literature, for instance, the Mishnah, the Tosefta, and then the Talmuds way later, we're talking like 600 years um, when you, when you talk about those things, then, um, y- there's really a huge gap. And so the idea that the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Talmud inform us at all of the first century Judaisms of the time, I'm not convinced. In fact, I, my father has done uh, quite a bit of work on this and, um, he's, he basically has changed his view of when the rabbinical writings were were uh, compiled and has really uh, kind of begun to champion the idea that you can't read back into the first century, the rabbinical writings. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Rob, or are you good?
1: Well, yeah, the general idea is it's, it's a, there's a problem. The problem is, and, and you, it doesn't have to be a matter of faith, it's a it's a problem for historians. Exactly. Whether you're atheist or Buddhist, or if you're if you're looking through the lens of a historian, you look at what are our sources? How do we know anything happened in in history? And so one way is we look at texts. We at we look at things that were written down. And we try to understand when they were written. And then we try to compare when they were written versus the actual manuscript evidence. When was the manuscript written? Um, And then we try to understand the meaning. You know, what is the language? What what is it saying? What's the basic claim of the text or presuppositions of this text? And we try to understand through archaeology and other accounts that were recorded. We try to build a picture of generally, what happened? What happened and when? So that's a, what happened and when is a problem of history, not a problem of faith. Um, Now, people of faith can have an investment in that discussion. Because, for example, the, you know, will a historian affirm the resurrection? No, a historian will say, People in the first century, followers of Jesus of Nazareth, believed he rose from the dead, and they wrote all about it. So they'll affirm, yeah, there was people in a big movement believing he had risen from the dead with that claim. But a historian in the academic realm cannot affirm, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, because that is not, uh, in, in the way history is done today, is not accessible evidence, right? Right. Um, now, some will say, that there saying, is,
0: wait, wait, we, we need to stop right there. A historian can say out of faith, I believe that, you know, uh, right, but, but right. in terms of history is what is what you're right. getting at. And I agree with, keep going. Because
1: believers, for me, it's history, right? It historically happened. But, you know, uh, if I'm in a, you know, heavy academic historian realm, they're saying, well, they're, because they come from a materialist worldview, they're going to say, unless he comes here himself you know, <laughs> and shows me his hands, kind of like the Thomas, Thomas thing, he's right. not going to believe. So that, that's that's where we transition from the realm of history, generally independent of faith commitment or faith claim, into where a community or individual will actually build knowledge based on conviction of faith uh, like for example, I've never seen the risen Yeshua, right? But I, I believe he is alive and risen, and uh, all authority in heaven and earth is his. Right? You know, and he's my Lord and Savior. You know, and 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 so that is when I describe that. I'm not describing history in general. I'm describing my personal uh, conviction of of faith which ties in with history. Okay, so big back to the to the other main idea though is we want to learn about how did how did Jesus walk? Was Jesus a Pharisee or not? You know, Paul was a Pharisee. Yes, Paul claimed to be a Pharisee. What's the continuity and discontinuity of first century Pharisaic movement into the later post-destruction Rabbinic world? And then when we look at the Rabbinic texts such as the Mishnah, the oldest Texts of which are only a thousand years old, not two thousand years old. Right. How much of that can be is accurate to what Rabbi Akiva said, for example, in the middle of the second century? Can we trust a a a document from the year one thousand that says what a sage said eight hundred years prior? Do I trust that? That's kind of with Caleb, what I'm hearing you say about the analogy of the Declaration of Independence kind of thing the di- the distance between a document and and then a person claiming something in this way it's it's a, a document from the year 1000 roughly is claiming that 800 years ago a certain rabbi said a b and c is that accurate or not is and and if it's the tradition is testifying of itself is that is that evidence in a court of law things like that so the, the problem is, How much of the rabbinic material uh, is accurate as reflecting first century reality and how much of it is imagined or projected back onto the first century um, in a a situation historically where there's contention or competition over uh, the authority of who interprets the, the Jewish scriptures for the world? Is it the rabbis or is it the believers in Yeshua? Who who's, Whose message um, is the one to listen to? And so there's a competition there. And so I I think that it, it, it's a complex problem and it, it requires a, a lot of skills. It requires uh, understanding of languages, different languages. It requires understanding of history. It requires understanding of manuscript uh, history. Um and the sociology of, of religious competition, you know, there's so much. There's so yeah, I, much. I, I mean, ultimately, I think—let's just
0: bring this back down into, you know, uh, the the average person who might want to pick up, you know, the Mishnah and start reading. If you think that this is going to inform you on the first century, then I, I think that you have—I um, th- think that you've been misinformed. Yeah. What the, what the uh, Mishnah is going to inform you on is— Closer to the fourth century, fourth century Judaism's of the you know of that time, um, it, and not first century Judaism's. So, right. but let's go back to Gary's comment here. He says, um, and actually, his last phrase in this sentence is a little bit. I'm not exactly sure what he's referring to. He says. Okay, so let's go back and read a little bit and we'll come into it. He says, this is somewhat surprising, especially since it might provide a good deal of insight as to how certain terms and concepts such as predestination were understood by the ancient Jews, which in my estimation would be critical in understanding and applying a historical grammatical interpretation approach to the scriptures. This is one thing that Torah Resource has promoted and encouraged as long as I can remember. I think what he's uh, referring to is a historical grammatical interpretation. If that's what you're referring to, yes, Torah Resource has always promoted a historical grammatical interpretation when it comes to the rabbinic literature Torah Resource has had a little bit of shift if you will over the years and what I mean by that is we haven't like shifted theology necessarily but when my father first started writing and created Torah Resource one of the first books he ever wrote was Intro to Torah Living if you look at Intro to Torah Living it's very rabbinic heavy Another thing that you could look at uh, that would be a good for instance might be uh, like his, his uh, commentary on Romans, his two-volume commentary on Romans. Uh, his two-volume co- commentary on Romans is not super rabbinic heavy, but he uses the rabbinic sources in a way that he wouldn't, to, I don't think he would today. Or maybe he he would, but uh, maybe he would make some clarifying statements in the way that he uses them. Um, and so if you if you compare that to what he writes today, so for instance, he just finished James. Well, James is not going to be um, rabbinic heavy at all. And if he does use the rabbis, which he might, he might use some rabbinical texts. But if he does, he's going to clarify that this is in a later time. And the reason why is because he, over the past, what has it been, uh, 18 years since he's been writing for Torah Resource, uh, over the past 18 years, he's come to realize, well, the rabbinical texts are much later than I originally thought they were. And I can't use them to inform me on on the first century Judaism's. And so that's the shift that's happened is a, a a proper understanding of and of course since my father is this move this
1: move if I might just put a footnote there this move is not unique to to no. to Tim Hague's commentary if you look at the academic go to if you go to SBL and you track how people how scholarship is is treating rabbinic literature in the 70s with like EP Sanders into the 80s it was, you know, this idea of common Judaism, right? That that you could just understand the rabbinic world. Um, Actually, that goes back into the 1800s. You know, yeah. this idea of of the the what is it? The Strack. Uh, what's his name? The guy who did they did in German. It's the commentary on the Mishnah and Talmud from a New Testament perspective. It's the presupposition is that, oh, all we have to do is is sift through the rabbinic literature and find anything it has to say about the second temple times. And what we do is we cut and paste all those together on a, on a, yeah. on a like putting up a screenplay yeah. and that that becomes the background for understanding the gospel. Let's storyboard and the Mishnah. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> sadly, there are, there are people particularly in, who claim to be believers in Yeshua that are still to this day in that 19th century mode of, of thinking. When in fact, um, all the all the top scholars, Jewish scholars of Jewish literature have followed what we call the neusner kind of turn, which is, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's That A, the Talmud was not written as the intent, or the Mishnah was not written as an intent to understand the background of the gospel. So if right. I'm reading the Mishnah to try to understand the gospels, I'm reading it against against its purpose as a document. So one of the core points of Jacob Neusner's career was to insist that rabbinic texts need to be read on their own as works of literature in and of themselves from their own time and place in their own kind of historical grammatical situation, if you will, and not to try to impose a unified, quote, Judaism that can account for all these different texts. Rather, you read the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael, and you can read the Mishnah, or you can read um, Sifra to de Deuteronomy or whatever. And, and the idea is you're not presuming that it's one authoritative structure that is uh, coherently make, right. uh, composing all these works. Rather, these are different works from different times. And sometimes there's shared ideology, and sometimes there's not shared ideology. So... Yeah, but I mean,
0: it, my father's uh, coming of like realization of, of uh, properly properly uh, placing the, the rabbinical texts in their historical context was ba- when he was having these revelations. Is basically when I was coming into, you know, when I was starting to study under my father, and so my my view of these texts is it benefits from my father's realization of these things at that time. Because I basically didn't have to re-understand these things. I came into, you know, I came in right when uh, all these things were kind of already being being uh, uh, figured out. Anyway, let's go back to Gary's email. He says, "Secondly, if you really do dismiss the sages on the basis of the horrible things they say or said about Yeshua." Would you not also dismiss the reformers on the basis of the horrible things they said about the Jewish people, namely Luther, Calvin, whom you both mentioned? Should you not apply equal weights and measures or am I missing something? I would say that you're missing something here. I'm not saying that we throw out the rabbis altogether. I think that the rabbis, if, if, uh, if you're looking for something specific, uh, the rabbis can be very helpful. So, for instance, if I'm looking, if I'm trying, and I did this in my in my work on uh, meal customs in, in throughout the first century and and the Christian era, if you want to look at uh, meal customs, one of the things that you're going to want to do is you're going to want to track how Christianity viewed m- meals, and guess what? Judaism is a part of that because Judaism's from the first century on. Uh, their meal customs changed as well. And you can see that Christianity and Judaism go together uh, in In that respect. They both kind of have this evolution of meals uh, at the same time. And so some are b- borrowing from others, especially with the split of Christianity and Judaism. So in that respect, of course, I'm going to go, I'm going to look at the historical evidence that the rabbis have to, to say about these meal customs. Um I think that if you're looking for various commentaries on how things have been viewed throughout history, if I want something on sixth century uh, view of, and let's just put it into, into the, the context that uh, Gary is putting it in, If we're going to look at predestination in the 6th century CE, then sure enough, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to look at some rabbinical sources. I'm going to go and look at some Christian uh, church fathers and whatnot. And if I want to look at what uh, Christianity is doing in the 1500s during the Reformation, then I'm going to go to the Reformers. This does not mean in any way, shape, or form that I'm going to accept theology hands-down From either one of those groups. I'm not going to look at the church fathers, I'm not going to look at the reformers and say, aha, these people believed it, therefore I believe it. I'm not going to look at the rabbis and say, aha, these people said it, therefore I'm going to believe it. You know why? Because all of those groups, the church fathers, the the reformers, and the rabbis have all had gross misunderstandings of certain things. And so, and this is one of the reasons that we had the Reformation in, in general, is because the Christian church was so off on so many things. So the, basically – and, you know, I got an email the other day from someone who was talking about, you know, maybe I should just, maybe I should just do away with the commandments and, and go back to the church. And so, the, like, the question is, are we doing something because we're in a movement? Or are we believing something because a group of people have said it? Or are we, or, or are we uh, living out our faith because we rest on the Bible? And because we are genuinely trying to see what, what God has said. So when it comes to the idea of predestination – Let's look at the scriptures first. And this might be a great... I know I've talked for a long time, but give me just a few seconds. This might be a good time to run down a little bit. Last week, I got excoriated by a couple of people on my proof text that I was using for predestination. And I just want to clarify that. I don't want to necessarily get back into this conversation. But it seems as though I did not do a very good job of of explaining what I meant. When I used Isaac as the catalyst or the example of predestination that Abraham said, give the covenant to Ishmael. And God said, no, it's going to Isaac. Okay, people said, well, you're using that text wrong. Let's ask this question. When God predestined or said that the covenant was going to go through Isaac before he was even conceived, could Isaac have carried the Abrahamic covenant and not been saved?
1: Or could Isaac have... Said abandoned no. God,
0: yeah, exactly. Could it's, Isaac... a
1: same, it's a similar idea.
0: And then, and then, in our Messiah Matters More uh, video, I brought this up too. Let's take it away from Isaac. Let's put it up up on John, the, uh, John the Baptist. It says that while he was in the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that that a person who is filled with the Spirit of Christ is saved. So was John the Baptist saved in the womb? And if so, did he choose that? Okay, so now with all of that said, with those two examples, now the question has to be, is it just those two people that God saved and predestined before they had a choice? Or does he do that with others? This is a domino effect in, in the uh, discussion of predestination. So that's where I was coming with, that, I, I, uh, with the idea of Isaac being the, the catalyst of, or the example, rather, is a better word, the example of predestination. Let's go back to Gary.
1: I, I, can I can yeah, I please. pop in here? There's something that occurred to me. First of all, thank you. I know I got a couple emails from Moises and Gary, so thank you and uh, Philip. You know, all of whom you know, three men whom I respect uh, that absolutely obviously disagree. They they all are affirming something or seem to be saying, "What about free will? What you know? How how does this work?" if I'm understanding them all correctly, uh, even though they might not all agree with one another on all the details. But anyway, one thing I appreciate about Gary's email was, or that came to mind that may, that I'm wondering if he, if he mentioned, even though he didn't, uh, or he had in mind, sorry, but he didn't mention explicitly is two, two different historical resources outside the scriptures. One was Josephus. And then some of them, some of these have talked about sages, you know the sages without actually citing what the sages were specifically on on this, I, and the Josephus passage is, is There's a couple of places where Josephus talks about the different philosophies, philosophia, right, right in in his among his people, and he the three main ones are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And there are places where the way Josephus, who's writing in the 90s, right, he's, he's at the end of the first century. Uh, presumably in Italy you know uh, writing back these histories of the Jews Wars of the Jews etc for his Roman audience and he's trying to explain these groups and he says the fair, you have the Essenes everything is fate everything is fate then there's the Sadducees that reject that there is no fate there is no world to come right it's it, it's everything's in the hands of men and then there's the Pharisees that say, Yes, there. You know, most things are by fate, but there are some domains. There are some places where men have some that are not determined by fate. So, and that's it's it's really simplistic, but basically that's kind of it. It's like he draws. It's like a Venn diagram, right? It's like (laughs) you have the Essenes and the and the Sadducees pitted against as opposites, and then you have the Pharisees trying to like be in the middle. With saying a little bit of the Essene idea and a little bit of the Sadducean idea together, that that yes, there's fate, but there are realms of of man's life where fate is not uh, determining everything. Well, but so that that's one source of from the first century. If we put Josephus in the first century, late first century, I don't have a problem doing that, even though our manuscripts are much later. That is trying to, it's like a sounding of of someone's opinion. Another is the rabbinic text from Mishnah Avot, which is a, a saying from Rabbi Akiva, which is popularly translated in English that everything is foreseen, but free will is given and that's a horrible translation. It's an, it's absolutely horrible translation, but I understand that English translations of rabbinic texts are never going to align with the doctrines of grace because right. the doctrines of grace define who, you know, who the, the sin problem, what, what it cost for atonement for God's people, etc. It's, it's all about the cross. It's all about Yeshua. So, um, so don't, don't expect if you're reading English translations of any rabbinic literature, don't expect to find an uh, affirmation of the doctrines of grace. Um, just, I just wanted to put that point out there. If we want to talk about the Mishnah vote saying of Rabbi Kiva, I'm happy to do that um, because I think that might help clear up people who are trying to understand where they see free will mentioned in rabbinic texts. It's because they're look they're, it's like they have English translation of rabbinic text, and then they type in free will and they see it, they find it. And then they think, Oh, rabbinics, you know, rabbis believe in free will. And what that does is there it's like searching a Bible in English. You know, you, you, you don't just take an English. Tra- There's a reason we have 50 translations of the Bible. Right. You know uh, if, if, if the rabbinic world, was as rigorous for their text that we would have 50 translations of the Mishnah because they'd all be saying, no we and next year we're going to have a new translation of the Mishnah for you right because you'd have that kind of intense rigor with how to interpret it so, so I'll pause it, there
0: yeah the, the and actually i i was accused in one email of be of having a extreme view of calvinism and that's actually kind of humorous because I think that I hold more to a re- reformed view of Calvinism than a modern view of Calvinism. And that is that I don't, I don't believe that God has uh, predestined us to sin. I, I don't think that God is the author of sin and therefore I don't think that God has predestined us to sin. And I think that uh, predestination has more to do with uh, God's choosing of the elect. I'll leave it there. i talk more about that in our Messiah Matters more. Let's go on with Gary's email. He says, "I'm not writing to argue for, uh, for or against the doctrines of grace per se, as if I might somehow persuade you differently. What I do know is there are a number of top-notch scholars, including the likes of E.P. Sanders and Shay J.D. Cohen, who was uh, Rob's teacher,
1: that maintain. No, 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 no. Oh no, who am I thinking of?" No, uh, he. but I use his textbook. Yeah, you use his, his textbook, textbook I'm sorry. in, who, in who I, who, First Century Judaism.
0: Who was your uh, t-
1: teacher? I had a number of teachers, but uh, who am Marty I thinking, Jaffe. Jaffe, who Jaffe that's what I'm one thinking of. My teacher, I'm Jaffe. sorry.
0: I'm, I mixed up Cohen and Jaffe. Anyway, sorry. Okay. So E.P. Sanders and Shea Cohen uh, that maintain that the Pharisees and the later sages of the Mishnah believe in a blend of both predestination and free will. Unlike Calvinism,
1: uh, Calvin. Yeah, I think I think the mission, the Mishnah vote passage I I mentioned earlier is I think the main go-to. Right. Um, that so, that probably I would imagine Gary has in mind.
0: Okay, let's keep going. Unlike Calvin and some of the other reformers, they did believe it had to be one or the other. In the words of E.P. Sanders, commenting on the Qumran literature, quote. It is certainly true that no other Jewish literature emphasizes God's sovereign determination of all things more than do the scrolls. On the other hand, no literature expresses more forcefully the need for individual choice and commitment. That at first seems contradictory, and some scholars have attributed these two views of, uh, to different schools or periods. The two beliefs, however, stand side by side and cannot be assigned to different people. Further, the supposed contradiction between predestination and free will does not accord with the common ancient view, which held them together quite happily. End quote. Judaism page 585. Let's stop right there for just one second. Um, w- once again, I think if we take a, a standard reform, view, like the reformer's view of predestination... The only problem that I have with E.P. Sanders' quote there is the uh, the word "free." You know, Spurgeon is the one who said, "I I don't understand the I'm paraphrasing. I don't understand the term free will. You are e- either a slave to sin or you are bound by grace." It's exactly right. Either you're under, either you're a slave to sin or you're you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Paul tells us this, right? So there's no such thing as
1: free will there is will i right. believe we in have, will. We have, and we have to remember that sanders too e.p sanders is trying to carve out a, a hermeneutical space as a criticism of reform theology particularly lutheranism um, and in the claim that that luther in particular read paul wrong and i can show you that luther read paul wrong because i'm going to quote a bunch of rabbinic texts or texts you know extra biblical texts to show that luther did not understand the judaism of the first century so that is that's ep sanders claim to fame is is that he that he decided this is the hill i'm going to fight on and so subsequently he's speaking to academics right about how to understand a history of the first century independent of theological claims of Protestant universities and, and things like that. So even, uh, even, even Sanders has a, has a history and a, and a kind of a location and a, and a dog in the race.
0: And this is what I want to say about this entire conversation. Ultimately, I really appreciate Gary's uh, comment here in his, his email. This is a great email um, and I think that he has really done, uh, you know, he's really thought some things out and, and uh, really put, put forward a, a great argument. But the, but the point that I would like to make on this is we do not take the rabbinical texts as, as uh, theologically true any more than I would take the reformers as theologically true. Each one of these people, they're not writing scripture, either one of them. Each one of these groups, each people in these groups need to be uh, analyzed individually. And each passage needs to be analyzed to see if whether or not it, it lines up with our measuring rod, which is sola scriptura, right? This is the, this is the point is that, um, you know, and this is, I, I suppose that this, we should go back to my comment uh, re, uh, in response to Moises last night, er, last, last night, last week in the chat room. Which is why would I accept the the uh, sages on this? And my point there is that just because the you know some Jewish rabbis back you know a thousand years ago said something or fifteen hundred years ago said something does not make it true. And just because someone is going to suggest that there's a monolithic view within Judaism, even though there's not a monolithic view on, uh, a view on anything in Judaism, um just because somebody's going to purport that there's a monolithic view within Judaism does not make it right. It it just doesn't. What makes something right is what the Scriptures teach. And so my point is going back to examples such as Isaac, such as John the Baptist, and other examples. It seems to me that within Scripture, and by the way, there are great scholars and great Christians who hold to a free will model. Olson is like the... Uh, Arminian apologist of the 21st century and I hold him as a dear brother in the Lord even though I strongly disagree with him so this is not to say that that, that I you know this is a salvation issue or anything like that the, but my point is is that when when we look at uh, examples like Isaac and like John the Baptist and it, and it seems to me that these people did not have a choice they were filled with the Holy Spirit and or predestined to be saved before they were even born what does that mean could, could isaac have said
1: they they here's the thing they desired the things of god right and over the course of their life they were refined by god they were corrected and refined for his purposes and they, they weren't they didn't have disobedient hearts they didn't glad, they didn't uh, they weren't happy to reject the things of god you know that.
0: So, so the last point I'll make make, make on this, and then we'll move on, is, um, you know, basically the question is, could Isaac have have come out of the womb, uh, grown up, be, became twenty one years old, and said, "Nope, I want to follow Moloch instead of Yodhe Vavhe," and and God say, "Okay, well, you're still going to carry the uh, Abrahamic yeah, covenant there's no, on."
1: There's no universe where that was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's no. There's <laughs>
0: And so, so was he predestined or John the Baptist? Could John the Baptist have come out of the womb and said, no, I think I'm going to, you know, just eat honey and curds in the desert and not do anything else. And I don't really want to help you, God, on this. And I think the answer is no, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, let's move on. Um, Good conversation, though. Thank you all for um, indulging us in, in, with your emails and your, your notes. And uh, yeah, it, it was a great conversation. You, too, can be part of the conversation, 253-465-3205. See um, Yeah, okay. Don't forget to subscribe and like this video. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and like this video. Moises, once again, you know, uh, hitting on all cylinders. We're going to go to another comment by Moises. Same guy wrote in. He said, uh, and this is on a YouTube, this is a comment on our YouTube, one of our YouTube uh, videos. <clears throat> Pardon me. He says, you keep talking about two-house theology as if it were wrong when the Bible is full of remarks and prophecies about the two houses of Israel and even within Judaism. Okay, that's his full comment. We're going to stop there. Somebody else wrote in and and asked about two-house theology. Uh, There is a difference between noting the two houses of Israel, that is, Judah and Israel, that we find in the Bible, and noting modern, what is referred to as two-house theology. Two-house theology, let's just go down a little bit of history here, Two-house theology really becomes uh, to the forefront of as a theological uh, viewpoint within the 60s. And I think that two-house theology is actually one of the marks of the Hebrew Roots Movement because those who believed in um, two-house theology ultimately became, they kind of grew into the Hebrew Roots Movement in the 80s. The first people who held the two-house theology basically borrowed a lot of the theology from British Israelism. British Israelism believed that that uh, Britain was one of the lost tribes of Israel, and that uh, they were uh, they had been displaced, and that they were basically, if you were part of that nation, you were Israel,
1: and that uh, you were. And some of them pushed so far that the the coronation stone and everything of of the kings of Britain was the Davidic line. Right. I mean, it's it's. It's pretty in depth. And and you have in America, you have uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, you have a kind of rewriting of tribal of, of the Indian tribes as being thought of the Lost Tribes. And of course, we know the famous, the now famous uh, Joseph Smith, uh, took that and ran with it and, and said, these are the Lost Tribes. And you had, so you have earlier kind of right. movements, but, but so to clarify, yeah, what Caleb's talking about now is we're looking at the the one over the last twenty, thirty years and how it's developed.
0: Right, and so basically, what you have is is uh, in the eighties, you have people uh, take this. Well, actually, in the sixties, this happens, but up into the eighties, you have this shift from um, from just a two house theology that's come from British Israelism into what I would call the Hebrew roots theology of, of Two-House theology. This is really promoted and pushed by Bacha Wooten. And she wrote multiple books with, I mean, we tried to write, my dad tried to write a review of Bacha Wooten's book, The Two Sticks or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time he got done with his, uh, with his critique, she had written a new edition of it. And so he never actually published that. But uh, the, the point is is that uh, there were many problems with that view. At the very core of that view, even though it was subtle, what basically was being pushed was this idea that if you were a Christian, this uh, I can show you quotes, if you were a Christian who felt a love for Israel and or felt a want to keep the commands of God, such as the Sabbath, kosher, and festivals, you didn't know it, maybe, but really, you were part of the lost tribes, and there were all these kind of events where you'd go. and And I remember one specific event. I went with my father. He was dropping off some books at a book table at a at a uh, some conference somewhere, and um, and basically, they had all these banners of the different tribes of Israel, and they they would ask questions like, "Okay, are you? What's your favorite color?" You know, is your favorite color blue? And some people would raise their, oh, then you're part of the tribe of Dan. Uh, you know, and then people, you know, oh, so, so what do you do for a living? Well, I'm an accountant. Oh, are you good with money? Yes. Oh, okay. You're part of the tribe of Judah. I mean, they made up all these arbitrary ideas and then all these people would go stand under the flags. I, I'm not joking. It was very odd and very weird. And some yeah. of this stuff still goes on. Now, this was back in the 90s, okay? And when we talk about two-house theology today, people say, oh, no, 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 you know, that's not what two-house theology is. Okay, well, it might not be what it is today because it has basically morphed even more because, honestly, it was so ridiculous that people couldn't jump on board with them. So now today, what people mean by two-house theology is the idea that there is Judah, which is the Jews living in Israel, which I'm, I still don't necessarily agree with, and that there is uh, then Israel, which are the lost tribes, and they're kind of scattered all over the place. Now, that's true. Israel is scattered. There's no doubt about that. But the point is, is that uh, what that does for two-house theology, some people would say, well, if you you love the Lord or whatever, they keep Torah, then you're part of the tribes. Other people would say, no. Other people have made it a salvation issue. Those who are truly saved are actually part of the lost tribes of Israel. And so really when we talk about two-house theology in, in 2020, the question that we have to ask is, what brand of two house theology are you? If we're just going to talk about the idea that Israel was separated into Judah and Israel because of their sin, and that this is actually a punishment, and back and when we get when we come into the new covenant era or whatever you want to say, that's probably the wrong word because there's so many different things associated with that. When the uh, new covenant it comes to its fu- fullest amount. And uh, Israel as a nation is is seen as followers of Christ. Um, guess what happens in Jeremiah? Judah is gone; it's just Israel. So they get they get brought back into one nation. Certainly, if if that's what you're going to call two house theology that they're that uh, Israel is scattered, Judah is scattered, and that at some point God's going to bring them back and make them one nation that is ruled by the Messiah. Sure, I'm fully on board with that, but that is not what two house theology today is seen as. And it's certainly not the history of two house theology. Uh, I reject the term two house theology because it comes from British Israelism. Anything else on that, Rob?
1: Yeah, well, the only thing is, it's like words. Like, you know, we say we're Calvinist, and then we have to clarify, well, it, what we mean is that we uphold the, you know, we affirm the doctrine, the, the doctrines of grace. And then, so, you know, two house theology. Well, what do you mean by that? So, you know, often we use shorthand, <clears throat> pardon me, shorthand terminology. And it's good that we, we clearly need to take time sometimes to step back and try to describe what it is we're meaning by that shorthand phrase. Cause I could understand if someone was brand new, you know, and just started studying the Bible and they're, they read about oh the house of israel and the house of judah and then they hear us talking about two house theology they could be like uh are these guys have these guys even read the bible right when there's kind of an insider language that we're using when we talk about two house theology so i caleb i think you did a good job i think or hopefully we tr- traced out some of the main lines there we sketched that out that's one of the things you know in the spring lord willing uh, Tim Hague and I co-teach a, critical, a class called Critical Issues, and we do spend a little bit of time on the issue of two-house and tracing kind of what we've talked about today with with various historic sources and things like that. Uh, so just a shameless plug there for spring quarter, so that's not for another four months. Though.
0: I don't want to down anyone at all in, on, mm-hmm. in terms of their knowledge, and I could be wrong on this, but usually when I hear people today in our modern day, say, like, that's not what two-house theology believes, or when people say, no, you got it all wrong, you haven't understood. Usually, I think to myself, this person is newer to the broader Torah movement. Like, you've come into the Torah movement within the past 15 years, most likely. You weren't around, and I could be wrong on that, but uh, usually people who say stuff like that weren't around in the 90s for, for all of the Bacha Wooten hysteria. And the various conference conferences that went on all over the United States, trying to bring people to an understanding that they were really part of the Lost Tribes of Israel. Um, and I, I'm not putting anybody down for that, but I like I was young. There's no doubt about it. You know, I was born in '81, but my dad was already taking You know, we were going to conferences. And my dad was teaching at conferences, um, as he was trying to understand. You know, as he was coming into. Uh, his theological beliefs after seminary and whatnot on the Sabbath and and things like that. He was uh, trying to associate with people who believe that, you know, some of these things. And inevitably, where do you think that we started? The Hebrew Roots Movement. And we were around for that. You know, I was around, I I remember vividly, I remember the exact place, the exact hotel that we went to when we saw uh, Michael Rood, and his prophecies that it was all going to end on September 9th, nineteen ninety nine, or that was when the, the tribulation was going to start. Uh, you know, I remember Monty Judah falsely prophesying, and us just shaking our heads at it. You know, people people think that uh, since it didn't happen when they they were in the movement or whatever, when they were keeping Torah, that it didn't make a, a big impact. It that was a huge I've
1: heard on those. I've heard people say, "Oh, well, they repented."
0: I I will never forget. I will never forget. I was in Israel. There was a lady there from Texas. She had sold everything. Her house, her car, everything. Because she was convinced. We were staying at the same youth hostel. She was convinced that Michael Rood was right. And that it was all going to, tribulation was going to start. War was just going to be everywhere. And the Messiah was going to come back starting September 9th, 1999. And when that didn't happen on September 9th, she was devastated. She didn't know what in the world to do.
1: She was stuck in Israel just like does, if you're out there contact us please <laughs> yeah I'd, I'd, I'd like to like learn about what the last thirty years of your life were like or uh, last 20 21 years I guess it would be
0: Oh, man just uh, yeah <clears throat> I mean we've seen the uh, we've seen the effects of, of a lot of these things go on and uh, some people haven't so okay uh, should we uh, should we go one more let's go one more sure um Okay, well, Jamie wrote this on one of our uh, YouTube videos. She says that uh, it seems to me that it is finished, is in regards to Christ's fulfillment of the first covenant. A husband has to die in order for his wife to be free to marry another. Uh, this
1: re- oh, this- Romans seven that that's yeah. the,
0: you- this this argument on uh, bring, being brought into salvation always annoys me. Go ahead for it. Go for it.
1: Well, I didn't see the email, but what I've heard, and and I'm it's kind of one of those predicted speech things. And if correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is Romans 7 says that as long as the husband lives, if if his wife is with another man, it's adultery and there's a death penalty. But um and he Paul's saying, I I you who know the law, you know this is true. But if the husband is dead she is freed from the law of her husband and she can marry someone else now and she's not called an adultery so the woman behaves kind of the same way but in two different scenarios one scenario she's married uh, and has an obligation and therefore sin is defined by that uh, covenant the other is she's a situation where she's freed from that and so what I've heard it say is that Christ came and was the husband that died or that God died so that his wife would be free to marry another person and that uh, that person, which is, uh, Jesus. Yeah. Is it, is that how, is that how she, is that that the question?
0: That's what I'm getting. Yeah. That's what I'm getting from the question.
1: Yeah. And I've heard a few people over the last, you know, it's been, yeah, over the last 20 years, you know, use that, Kind of thinking, and and I just encourage them to read very carefully. Uh, it's helpful if you read it in Greek, but I know that's not for, uh, for everybody. That what we something has died. We are die. We have died with respect to our obligation to die because of our sin to the Torah. So, in other words, as long as I'm an unrepentant sinner, I have a death death penalty on me. Right. It's, it's like, um, uh, it's like, it's like, if I committed a crime, right. And the police are after me and I'm on the run, I'm, re- I live in hiding. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, and so I'm not a free person. And It's not, it's not like I'm free now. I might, you could say, well, what's the domain of my authority? Well, I can choose, I'm going to, Stay in this motel or that motel, <laughs> but the police are after me because I've 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 committed a crime. Well, that's what sin is like. So if we've sinned against God, we have there's a death penalty on our head. The wrath of God is on you. Only in Messiah is there no condemnation if you are a new creation. But if you're in Messiah, that means the old per, the old man has died and the sin debt has been paid by our identification with Messiah by his grace because he died for us and we as Paul says if you've died with him so too you have new life and we are connected with him we are connected with his resurrection life there's there, it, it's either that or you're still under the sin so that that we got to remember what Paul is arguing in Romans 7 it's not it's not um, God died so that, now you're this woman who wanted to have this other relationship, but couldn't because you were obligated to some other thing. So God said, I'll tell you what, I'll just die. So that you're freed from that. That's not it. That's, that's uh, not a a proper interpretation.
0: Ultimately there's, there's multiple things that I have that are going on here. First of all, it it is a misunderstanding of the Torah in general. If a, if a, um, if a bride commits adultery, the husband is not obligated to put her away. The husband can stay with her. There's nothing in the Torah that says that a husband can't stay with someone who's committed adultery, that you have to divorce and you can't be with somebody who's committed adultery. And ultimately, uh, believers at, or well, Israel— there
1: is a de- the Torah, there is a death penalty.
0: There is a death penalty, yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Right. But the uh, ultimately, the point is is that the idea that, that uh, this is somehow talking about, uh, I think your, your interpretation is, exa- is, is exactly right. And one of the reasons that I think that the interpretation that this person has is so egregious is because ultimately what it does is it uh, misinterprets salvation; It gets the gospel wrong. And w- even if it's just a little bit wrong, it, this one's pretty wrong and it is wrong. And uh, no, <laughs> you know, th- this is a misinterpretation of the gospel itself. And if we continue to, to uh, misinterpret the, the core of our salvation, of our belief, of our faith in the Messiah, um, then we are on really, really slippery ground. If we're able to misinterpret the, the core doctrine of our faith, then uh, there's problems there. Uh, this is, I've, I've heard this push by a lot of people that, you know, this is another interpretation of this or another idea of this is that idea that, um, a, a, that God gave Israel a certificate of divorce and the only way that he can bring her back is if there's a death. Well, this is a misinterpretation of the law that, uh, if she goes and marries another, Israel never married another. She played the whore according to the scriptures, but she never went and married another. Um anyway, I think that there that, that the there is multiple flaws within such an interpretation.
1: The the proper interpretation of freedom is is expressed so concisely by Paul in, in Galatian into Galatians five, I think it is, or the beginning of Galatians five. For freedom, Messiah has set you free. You're not free unless Messiah set you free. Right. That's that's the point. So if you want to use this idea, I have free will, or or um, it's my choice whether or not you're you're not free unless Messiah has set you free, and if Messiah has set you free, what does that mean? It means that you have died with Him, and you part you are a participant in His resurrection life, and that's who you are. So you don't have a you. you that's who you are. You are a new creation. You are a new creation. That's the good news. Right. The good, the good news of God's of God's grace in Messiah, is new creation life, because you were you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So you were a fugitive. You were a fugitive against obligation before God. Yeah, and, and you know this idea of you know I, we should stop there, and maybe we'll we'll see how it goes. Maybe we can come back to this Mishnah vote saying someday and. And talk about it.
0: All right. Uh, well, Hey guys, it's, uh, it's another one in the bag. We have, uh, kicked off season eight, season eight, eight. Woo-woo. Season Woo-woo. eight baby. Woo-woo. Um, yeah, season eight,
1: which Didn't is you, the letter hat. <laughs> <No,
0: I'm kidding. laughs> you know, I, as, as, as much as I just, uh, as much as I, uh, prepared for, uh, this, I realized that I actually forgot to put in a logo or a, a screen for our outro. So you're going to get the uh, Messiah Mad-
1: Matters story. We're looking back, looking back to season seven. That's right. I, well,
0: it's okay. Yeah.
1: And we got to get that soundboard up and running. Which soundboard? We got to get some new clips. I, I got some clips I got to send your way.
0: Send me some clips, man. I, I I'm I'm ready for them. Okay. Ready for new clips. If you want to add glitter to that glue you're sniffing, that's fine. But don't dump your wackadoo all over us. All right. Um, Here we go. Uh, I hope that uh, this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior Yeshua the Messiah. You know why? Mm. You know why. Mm. Because Messiah Mm. matters.